Every car company is falling over themselves to make electric cars now. This is Thomas Heatherwick, visionary British designer who has been variously compared to Leonardo da Vinci and Willy Wonka. There is still hundreds of millions of buses and lorries and cars that are pumping out fossil fuels with loads of particles in them. Could something be more than just saying I'm not doing damage, but proactively be doing something good? If this could clean the air as it moves around, rather than just not polluting it, that would really make a difference. Could there really be an electric car that cleans the air as it drives? We were interested to find that edge of reality because our passion is reality, not concept houses, concept worlds, but real worlds around us that can be used by us all. Our duty is to keep trying to be inventors and pushing forward what's possible. Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, Urban Space in Transit. This podcast is brought to you by Randox, a company that's been advancing the field of medical diagnostics since 1982. Over the series, we'll be chatting to some of the people making it happen. My name's Mark Ruddock, and I'm the clinical studies manager for Randox Laboratories. I've been here almost 21 years. But after this podcast, Mark might have found his true calling. Because I have a face for radio anyway. In his current job, Mark develops diagnostic tests for various diseases. I'm responsible for setting up um, clinical trials, monitoring clinical trials, collating data and, you know, trying to develop new tests. One of the diseases Mark works on is bladder cancer, which has a higher mortality rate than other types of cancer, like kidney, stomach or ovarian. That's mainly because it often gets diagnosed late. Early bladder cancer is very treatable. Randox wants to help clinicians have better ways of diagnosing bladder cancer early. We'll check in with Mark later in the episode to hear more. But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. In the city, the environment around you is almost entirely made by humans. Infrastructure like buildings, bridges, roads, tunnels and streetlights 
means of transport like cars, buses, bikes. We're surrounded by man-made things. In fact, we often have to really push to preserve nature there if we want to see water, trees or plants. And with that man-made environment come man-made problems to be solved. Air and noise pollution, the lack of quality housing, the tension between public and private space, and who gets access to the resources a city offers. We're at a crossroads with urban space. What do we want our cities to be like in the future? What's not working that we want to change? How do we take a complex system like a city and make it new? There are so many different ways we could look at this question, and it's something we'll return to in more episodes of the podcast. But in this episode, we're looking at it through the lens of transportation. How can we move people and things through cities in a way that's better for the environment and better for the people living there? I do have a car, but I've had the car for 30 years. It's the only car I've ever owned. It's a Citroen 2CV, designed in 1938, 39, and uh, it leaks air and it's a bit keeps you awake and keeps you aware of the risk. Thomas Heatherwick is a designer and the owner of Heatherwick Studio since 1994, which is always busy, as you can probably hear. We have a team of 180 people and we work on a huge range of things, but we try to prioritise public experience. Even if you're unfamiliar with Thomas's name, you will almost certainly be familiar with some of his work. So, for example, in London, we designed the the new London buses that people might have seen going around. That's the evolution of the classic Red London Routemaster, one of the most iconic symbols of the capital city. We did the Olympic Cauldron. We've just finished a project in New York that's a new pier over the Hudson River which has an outdoor theatre on it and other performance spaces. We built Africa's first contemporary African art museum using a giant grain silo structure and converting it. And so we're, we're really interested in soulfulness and how you make the world around us more human. There are so many ambitious Heatherwick projects. But I know today we're talking about a car. It's the first time he's designed a car. And it's a car that has the potential to transform the way we move through our cities and improve the very air that we breathe. To fully grasp this latest design, we need to go back to the beginning of Thomas's story. He was born in London in 1970, and from the age of six, he dreamt of becoming a designer. And I was brought up around people who who made things. My mum was a jeweller and enameller, and I'd go with her to the different fairs she was going to. At these fairs, Thomas was mesmerised by the different crafts on show. Hammocks and walls and roofing and glass blowing and carpentry and welding and forging. And I found that exhilarating to be around. This craft tradition stayed with Thomas and it forms a huge part of his design philosophy today. Our country, in the the UK, there are still thousands of really talented makers and, and people who think 
in a, a soulful way about the materials that they use and the effects and feelings of what they make. Thomas spent his childhood designing everything from mechanical birthday cards to go-karts. He studied 3D design at degree level and followed that with a two-year furniture MA at the Royal Academy of Art. As he grew older and made his way through design school... It became clear to me that the world of making the world around us was chopped up into specialisms. So there were people who just built office buildings and people who just did things called sculptures and people who just did things called landscape and people who did things called theatre and everything was broken up but it felt that the most interesting things I saw were amalgamations and unusual linkages and connections between these things. Thomas didn't want to just design one thing. He wanted to work across architecture, product design, engineering. He wanted to be an interdisciplinary designer. And I think the best things are often when someone spots a thought from a place that it wouldn't normally come from and then making an association, a connection, and that leading to something that pushes forward. It's one thing to aspire to push design forward, but in reality, designers are constantly expected to make compromises. For many, that's when the sense of wonder quickly evaporates. You don't have enough time, you don't have enough money, there's extraordinary restrictions and constraints in the planning authority guidelines and in the realities of the real world around us. And that's where, to use a cheesy expression, the rubber hits the road. That's the bit, is whether you go, you blame the world for why your designs become rubbish Kind of, oh, well, the planners, you know, they're so narrow-minded, they wouldn't let me do it. Oh, well, the client didn't have enough money, so I blame the client. Everyone else's fault. Or whether you own that yourself. Think, well, these are real restrictions. And rather than having a perfect image in a book of the, your, your brilliant genius vision, how do we actually work together with everybody and kind of co-create something that does exist and is the best it could have been, given all of these constraints? Working within these constraints and using them to his advantage has helped Thomas envision cities full of possibility. This is where the car comes in. We were commissioned to design a car for a company called IM. That's IM Motors, a huge new Chinese manufacturer of electric cars. The car Thomas and his team have designed for them is not just any electric car. It's not even just any autonomous electric car. It cleans the air around it. The car that we're developing is called Aero. It's an SUV scale of car, and it's designed to clean the air as it travels around from the particles of the pollution from the other cars, buses and lorries around. The world of car design is easily full of micro-styling details. And I think we felt, when we were asked, these multiple interests. One was, how do you not just do another concept car? Because car shows are full of concept cars. 
things that are kind of a glossy image and a piece of marketing that are there to promote the everyday, ordinary ones and don't necessarily go further. Thomas wanted to create a new vehicle that had practical implications for cities. We were interested to find that edge of reality because our duty is to keep trying to be inventors and pushing forward what's possible. Thomas's design for the Aero arrives at a time when air quality in cities is increasingly a priority. And we've all spent the last year and a half coming up with filtering our faces in one way or another. So we were there thinking, well, potentially there will be a million of these cars if this is successful. And so you've got all these things moving around, particularly urban areas. Is it just smugly going to like electric cars saying, I'm not doing damage? Or could something be more than just saying, I'm not doing damage? but proactively be doing something good. There's still hundreds of millions of buses and lorries and cars that are pumping out fossil fuels with loads of particles in them. And we knew there'd been some tests with a few buses actually in the UK where they were filtering the air as they moved around. The technology is called HEPA. That stands for High Efficiency Particulate Air. It's a filtering system that actively cleans pollution. One of these buses travelling around will capture approximately in a year three tennis balls worth of particle that would have otherwise gone into people's lungs if they'd breathed it. Thomas thought What if a car could clean the air in this way? In Chinese cities like Shanghai or Beijing, these cars could have a significant impact on the air quality. Not necessarily one car in isolation, but if cities invest in them as a fleet, as a municipal standard, much like Thomas's Red London buses, then suddenly the pollution filtering could make a real difference. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier in the episode, we met Mark, who's working to develop a better diagnostic test for bladder cancer. One of the main reasons bladder cancer has a higher mortality rate than other cancers is late diagnosis. For example, lots of women with bladder cancer are mistakenly diagnosed with a urinary tract infection because the symptoms are so similar. One of the main symptoms is hematuria, which is basically blood in the urine. And the other symptoms are things like um, a frequent urge to urinate, burning sensation during urination, and lower back pain. And when patients do get the right investigations, it can be quite invasive. One test they might need is a cystoscopy. Which is a camera which is inserted up the urethra into the bladder. 90% of patients who present with bladder cancer have a recurrence within 15 years, which means they have to be monitored and tested regularly. This can be tough on patients, and it also makes bladder cancer the most expensive cancer for the NHS to treat. So Randox started working on a new test that would be way less invasive and much cheaper. We'll find out more about that later.
the aero is also attempting to address another enormous problem. The vast population of the planet, most people are struggling with the space in their lives and it's very expensive in real estate. And yet weirdly, so perversely, there are over a billion cars in the world and they sit for 90% of the time doing nothing. Thomas was thinking about how we use our cars as physical space. And then you also think about often people's most comfortable chair that they own is the chair in their car. And the best stereo (laughs) is the stereo in their car. And you think, well, what if we could actually make that a useful room? So the aero has rotatable seats. With the seats facing each other, a table can be unfolded to create a dining space or a screen extended to watch films or play games. But a room that you can use to sit and work, have a meeting, have a meal. By making double doors, that was the other thing. By having double doors that slide open, that means you can really not just be in a road, but you can go to your favourite place and sit and it's like French doors have opened and you're in that view. It's a stunning futuristic vision and one that's on the cusp of existence. In May 2021, the design was unveiled. The exciting moment was when the president of IM Motors came into the Shanghai Automotive Show where the full-scale mock-up was shown apparently has never given the go-ahead as fast as this for a car to go into production. Now the race is on for Thomas and his team to turn this dream into a reality. We've got 36 months for it to be engineered and all the industrialization. And for a designer who relishes compromise, this is one of the most exciting parts of the process. What compromise do we need to make? How can we equally turn those compromises into positives and make ideas that we even haven't had yet? Across this series of the Future Lab podcast, we've been exploring the idea of an automated future in racing, trucking, space exploration. The aero is also part of that story. The car is a 100% electric and it is a driven car that has the option to be driverless. Thomas feels the Aero's driverless capability could be beneficial for a number of reasons. The possibility with driverless cars, I think, is more about the possibility for them to be shared more as well, because a driverless car can then also transport somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. But they're not a solution to urban transportation. They are a personal mobility solution for some things, but if everybody in a city jumped in a driverless car, it'd just be a total traffic jam of everybody. Even if it won't solve the problem of urban mobility, Thomas hopes driverless vehicles will free up humans for other activities. If a vehicle could transport somebody and let them spend that time not on lifting their foot, putting their foot down, lifting their foot, putting their foot down, lifting in traffic jams and all of these ludicrous time wasters of human intelligence. You know, it's like humans should be used. Instead of using what a machine could easily do, use us for the bits we do best, which is imagination and unexpected 
emotional insights and intelligences that are the last things that artificial intelligence will ever manage to duplicate. It's not just personal automated transportation that could soon change how our cities look. The experience of getting something delivered, you know, by a robot, people remember that. This is Artie Hainler. It's a little bit of an occasion, right? Artie was a founding engineer at Skype, and he's now a co-founder of Starship, a company making autonomous robots that deliver food orders and other packages to people's doorsteps. Current tests for bladder cancer are expensive, invasive and can lead to infection. On top of that, many people with bladder cancer go undiagnosed until late into the illness. So Randox has been working on ways to help solve those problems. We are developing a urine-based test. This is a non-invasive test that can be administered really easily to people who might be at risk for bladder cancer. It's much better for the patient. It's a cost-effective way to monitor patients on an ongoing basis. We look for particular proteins which are secreted from the epithelial cells inside the bladder. Based on that result, the patient can be referred for further investigations or monitoring. This new test could help patients avoid surgical procedures and make sure they receive effective treatment as early as possible. It also means more people can get tested in a cost-effective way, so mortality rates for bladder cancer can start to be improved. To learn more about the work Randox does, visit randoxhealth.com. According to Artie Hainler, co-founder of the autonomous robot delivery company Starship, as memorable as it is the first time a robot texts to say it's outside your door, receiving deliveries this way quickly becomes much more than a novelty. We have had a service in Milton Keynes for more than three years now. We launched in April 2018 and um, we still have lots and lots and lots of customers that have been our customers for three years. Artie thinks the future of cities will be determined by what people love and hate about cities now. We'll keep what we like and evolve out of the things that look bad, harm the environment or get in people's way. Like people don't, don't like to see delivery vans. So these get replaced by smaller robots that are actually less visible in the city. Starship's robots are small white boxes with streamlined rounded corners. About, you know, shoulder width on the sidewalk, like the size of a cooler. They have three small sets of wheels and a narrow window at the top circling all the way around the box like a mini 360-degree windshield. This houses all the cameras and sensors used for viewing and navigating the world. And uh, the robots drive on the sidewalk. They cross the roads using crosswalks, observe traffic lights, you know, just like everybody else, just like a pedestrian essentially would. And they go about pedestrian walking speed. Each robot also has a little orange flag on top of an antenna, kind of like the ones you see on kids' bikes. And they're very energy efficient. It's comparable or less energy than, than yourself actually walking to the store. So it's much more environmentally friendly than using a car, even if it's an electric car. 
Starship is trying to change the way local deliveries happen in cities to meet the demand for cheap, fast delivery. And they want to do this using small robots that can easily be integrated into the landscape of a city. If you combine all the numbers together, the cities and the college campuses in the US that we're serving and so forth, it's actually a million people that have access to our service. All this started for Arti when he was growing up in Estonia in the 70s and 80s. I actually grew up in a family of uh, software developers. So my mother taught me how to program computers when I was uh, 10 years old. I was uh, reading books about electronics also when I was like eight years old or something like that. I was sort of dreaming that I, I would become this electronics engineer or, you know, I would build this sort of, you know, stuff that would do something. But Artie found when it came to assembling things with his hands, he was better in theory than in practice. But sitting behind a computer and writing code, this, this actually came easier for me, so I gravitated towards uh, that instead. During his childhood... Estonia was under occupation by the Soviet Union, which affected the technology he could access. All sorts of you know, newer you know, computers and so forth reached Soviet Union later than the Western world. It was a long way from the world Artie is trying to build now with Starship. In Soviet Union in the 80s, I think everybody had to go and get things from the store. And, you know, you were lucky if, you, if there were anything in the store. So, so, so I, I, think, I think that was the challenge in Soviet 80s, you know, not how do I get it delivered. So I think we have we've come a very, very long way. But the good thing is that the Soviet education system is actually pretty good in the technical and engineering uh, topics. So despite the challenges his family faced... Artie was able to start a career that would include introducing more than one pretty revolutionary product into the world. His first major success was as a co-founder of Skype. Skype was one of these fairly rare startups, I think, that enjoyed success from day one. A lot of startups, you know, go through pivots and they do A-B testing. They try something, then iterate on it that, oh, this didn't work, let's try, you know, something different and then this hopefully works a little bit better and then it works a little bit better and so forth. But Skype wasn't like that. Kind of the first thing we, we tried you know, really worked very well. In 2005, Skype sold to eBay for $2.6 billion. You hear about startups, you know, with great valuations and being sold for like billions. Back then, I think, you know, that was it didn't really happen all that much, especially in Europe. The seed of the idea for Starship came later, in 2013, after Artie took part in one of NASA's centennial challenges. When NASA wants to look beyond government-funded organisations for key innovations to get its space programmes off the ground, pun intended, it can announce a centennial challenge. This is a competition where people and groups from anywhere in America can attempt to come up with an original, groundbreaking solution for the challenge NASA has issued. Back in 2013, Artie took part in the Sample Return Challenge to build a robot which could find and bring home soil samples from another planet. Exactly like the Mars rovers we heard about in the last episode. 
Although Artie's robot design didn't make it to outer space, he and his soon-to-be co-founder Janus Fries realised they might still have something they could use to change the world dramatically, just a little closer to home. If you look at what robots are being built in the world, you see a lot of things which have either no commercial value or that you don't imagine that, okay, this robot could actually like, impact everybody's lives. We were thinking, you know, what could we do with robotics? But we wanted to do something that could change everybody's lives, could touch everybody's lives. So Artie and Yanis thought about the areas of life in which robots could make a huge difference. And we thought that, oh, actually, delivery is one of the few things where that's actually possible. You might be thinking the name Starship must have come out of this story, with Artie building the first of his robots for the NASA Centennial Challenge. But that's actually not how it happened. Picking names for products is actually very, very difficult nowadays because uh, most of the good names are already taken. We actually had like, brainstorms about names and, uh, and had an agency actually working for us, thinking for you know, suitable names. Believe it or not, but it was actually a computer-generated name. I myself actually wrote software to, <laughs> to, to generate names. In the end, the name that was generated by software actually, actually won. Starship's delivery robots were designed with local delivery in mind, getting food and other smaller packages transported within cities. It works like this. You download Starship app, uh, you open it up, you select you know, what do you want, you select order now, then you get an estimated time of arrival, which you know, could be you know, half an hour or something like that, and then the robot arrives. You get a ping on the phone, you walk outside, you tap a button in the app that open up the robot, green light appears that you can now take your stuff, the robot's unlocked. You take your thing, you, you send the robot away, and the robot says, thank you for your order. For your order. The people of Milton Keynes have been sharing their streets with these robots for over three years. And Starship have recently expanded to Northampton too. The robots have cameras and a bunch of other sensors as well. It has been quite a bit of engineering that has went into the robots. In fact, actually, the robots have more lines of software code than the NASA Mars rovers on the Mars. This might seem surprising, but on Earth, an autonomous delivery robot has to be able to cope with a lot of potentially complicated scenarios. They see pedestrians, you know, vehicles, obstacles, and uh, they navigate the world by themselves. In complicated situations, we have an option that a person, an operator sitting in an office, could take control of the robot or guide the robot through some sort of a difficult area. That sometimes happens, not very, very often, but sometimes happens. And Artie says the robots are designed to be as safe as possible for the people and cars already roaming the city. With all sorts of autonomous technologies, some of the first questions people ask are, you know, is this safe? Our robots are you know, pedestrian speed, lightweight. Even if you would somehow, you know, collide with the robot, it's like a bump, you know, like you would collide with another pedestrian on a sidewalk. <laughs> you don't get injured. Giving people the confidence to coexist with robots is one of the big challenges Starship has faced. One of the risks that we identified was that uh, what if people don't like robots on the sidewalk? What if people are afraid of robots on the sidewalk? You know, you never know. 
You haven't, haven't tried this. How does a person react when they see an autonomous robot approaching them on the sidewalk and they've never seen this thing before? We really thought, you know, there, were, there could be actually risks that people are afraid of it. Because of this, a lot of thought went into the exterior design of the robot. We could have had the robot, you know, look industrial. Then we could also make it look like, uh, like an animal or like a human being, you know, have more like, you know, eyes and, you know, mouth and, you know, something like that. Or we could make it look like a little bit neutral. Neutral, but cute. And that's what we ended up doing. It was on a trip to meet with investors in Boston that Artie and the team got their first chance to observe how people would react to their robots, encountering them for the first time in a place where they had no context for them and no expectation of seeing them there. Nobody in Boston had seen this robot before. We went to the sidewalk and they put the robot there and we let the robot drive and we went out of the site a long way away. So people didn't associate the robots with us. We were sitting on a park bench and observing from a distance. And to my surprise, people didn't react at all. The robot just went on on the sidewalk and the people just walked past, you know, talking to each other just like before, or, you know, you know, looking at, well, they were also looking at their phones because that's what people nowadays do when they walk on the sidewalk. So they didn't really pay attention. There was one person who walked past and just you know, looked back a little bit. What was that? But then, you know, carried on. So that was actually very reassuring <laughs> because that's what we wanted. We didn't want to cause a lot of commotion on the sidewalk, right? From day one, people really have accepted our robots on the sidewalk and that's great. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arley Adlington, Isis Thompson, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast. Thank you.